0: A start. On demand. On demand. Could you have empathy for the man who killed your child? Today, we spoke to the mother of one of the victims in the Humboldt Broncos crash, Evan Thomas. Both she and her husband have shown remarkable empathy for Jaskarat Singh Sidhu, who pleaded guilty to all charges against him. We'll speak to a young Winnipeg man who broke his neck five months ago and says, He's not only recovered, but he's stronger than before, thanks to the good people at Health Sciences Center. If you go to Mexico, do you venture off-resort for a more authentic experience? We'll talk to a police expert who says you shouldn't. And what is the grossest thing you've ever eaten willingly? We had a conversation that reveals we're all kind of disgusting. I'm Brett McGarry, and alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb, we are Mackling McGarry and McNabb, and this is the podcast for the start. Loren McNabb, we have a special guest with us, joining us live.
1: Yeah, and we're so grateful to have her on with us this morning. We've been playing some of the audio from the Saskatchewan courthouse, where just yesterday the truck driver in the crash that killed 16 members of the Humboldt Broncos and injured 13 others pleaded guilty to 29 counts of dangerous driving, and it his move prompted the parents of Evan Thomas, who died in that crash, to share their thoughts on accountability and potentially down the road forgiveness. And we and we wanted to get more on on just how they've walked that path and where they've come since that terrible day. We're joined now by Evan's mom, Lori Thomas. And Lori, thank you so much for taking the time with us this morning.
2: No, thank you, uh, Lauren, and, and the team for having uh, me on the air. Uh, I appreciate it.
1: You know, we talk a lot about what we might do in that moment and, and that incomprehension that you, you would have as a parent when you lose a child. When you heard Jaskarat Singh Sidhu say yesterday, I plead guilty, Your Honour, what was going through your head?
2: Um, well, for Scott and I, uh, we we need to move forward. And um, the fact that he pled guilty, he accepts responsibility, um, that 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 helps in our grieving and our healing process, and I know Evan would want Scott, Jordan, and I to move forward. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a very difficult day yesterday, but um, you know, had it gone to trial, it 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 would have went into twenty twenty, mm-hmm. and that, that's just hard. It it it's hard to not move forward. Um, but he pled guilty yesterday, and and so that was important for for our family, and I can't speak for the other families, but I think it's important for the other 28 families as well.
3: Loria, I I cannot speak to you without expressing my condolences for everything that's happened and and for the loss of your son. Evan, this tragedy has brought with us so many lessons to our entire country, lessons in humility, uh, public safety, but also this idea, I'll never forget your husband, Scott, expressing his gratefulness and his thankfulness for the support that our our country has uh, provided, uh, your families, the families of other victims, the entire community of Humboldt, Saskatchewan and the the hockey community. How, how is it that you, you managed to be so grateful in, in this time of, of such tragedy?
2: Well, I, I, it is important because so many have reached out to us, um, And it is a tragedy. And, you know, we continue to get outpouring from, like, and I'll use an example. We came home from Orlando at Christmas and, you know, we opened Christmas cards from a hockey team in Ontario and they had a pitcher and and they just talked about how how much that day impacted, you know, them and families. And and that's Humboldt's been fantastic. Saskatoon's been fantastic. I'm from Moose Jaw. Uh, Scott played Moose Jaw for the Moose Jaw Warriors. So it, the thankfulness we need to show helps, um, and we're just appreciative. Like there's just so many people impacted by this tragedy. Um, that it's important for Scott and I to say thank you to everyone.
0: Were you surprised by the guilty plea?
2: Um. A little bit uh, because it's, it's hard to know and maybe it's because it's been nine months three days and you know we didn't know till yesterday that he was gonna appear in in court um, I knew in my heart of hearts that Scott needed to be there um, I couldn't be there it, it it's it's hard but um again the one thing I keep saying it doesn't it doesn't bring my son back but at least Mr. Sadu, you know he realizes the impact he's had on so many, and that yesterday was important. Um, but again, I keep saying it doesn't bring my son back, and I know Evan would want us to move forward and heal. And it's important for Scott and Jordan and I to do that, and 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 the other twenty-eight families, and and everyone else is impacted.
1: You mentioned, you know, and you said nine months and three days, and and the count that comes from knowing exactly when you lost your son. And I have no doubt you wake up and think about that. So over and over again. And so I, I'm, I, I'm curious to know if you have thoughts as much as you want to move on and you know your son would want you to move on. Do you have any feelings about what you'd like to see a punishment be when it comes to the truck driver? And you know, knowing the maximum penalty, I think is 14 years. Is there, is there a sentence that's in your mind or does it matter?
2: Uh, for me, it doesn't matter. Um, I, and I know it's important because even Scott said yesterday, and I think it was to Donna Friesen, one year, two years, Mr. Sadu has to get up every morning and know that, you know, he, he blew that stock sign and he, he killed 16. And, you know, there's Morgan and, and, and the other boys and stuff and some of the other kids that their, their lives are forever changed. And so... Uh, a sentence doesn't bring the 16 back it like I said we're forever changed so I think for for us it's it's, it's more closure so that we can move forward and heal in our in our process and grieve there doesn't there's not a day that goes by that I wake up going okay et's coming through the door you know I'm watching the Broncos play this season and you know braids on the ice and and we miss him we miss him so much Um. A trial and and sentencing, it prolongs it, right, for us. So, And I know, Evan, I can feel and say, Mom, move forward. I don't want to see you and Dad and Joel unhappy.
3: I think that's the most difficult thing for a lot of us, Lori, is the fact that, you know, in this criminal justice system, it is the victims that have to relive these tragedies over and over again. And, And so there's at least a handful of times that, that the victims of this won't have to do that again. So I, yeah. I, I hesitate to use the word gift for Mr. Sadu, but uh, it is definitely something that uh, I, I think um, he deserves some credit for, and I, I applaud you for, for trying to give him that credit. It's an uh, incredibly difficult thing to do. I mean, yeah,
2: forgiveness is important because, again, he accepted responsibility Um I mean, he, he, he could have not, he, it's a tough, it's tough because like you said, it, it's a justice system. It's, you know, I, I mean, he, he killed 16. So, and my boy was one of those. And so the part that's heartbreaking is the grief process. You, you go through mixed emotions and stuff, but I, I keep saying he, it doesn't, it doesn't bring Evan back. And I know he wouldn't want us to, to not forgive him. And the fact that he pleaded guilty yesterday, it it gives us some closure and that we can move forward. But every April sixth, forever, we we will remember this day. Well, wow, like I guess I feel like I've lived a lifetime since uh, Friday, April the sixth. And I, I remember that day because Scott and Jordan and I decided not to go to the game in Nippon and, and Scott hopped in with uh, Cal and Jockey Hobbs, their boy Declan was a goalie for Nicholan and you know, at five thirty Evans Billet's phoned me and then Scott was phoning, Jordan was driving, and you know, you just you kinda wait and you hope and you pray, but like I said, it's forever changed. And like I said yesterday I a sentence of, you know, I I know the system has to work, but it it, it doesn't change any anything for me um, other than to move forward and to remember my boy was exceptional. He always forgave. He was smart. He, like you said, he was a hockey player, but he loved his teammates. He loved the coaches. Um, He loved his family, his friends. So he's, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Now you're getting me rambling.
3: (laughs) No, you're an inspiration, Lori. You really are. And the amount of grace and uh, the humility that, that everyone involved has shown has been overwhelming. Thank you for your time today, and once again, love and, and, and support yep. from, from Manitoba.
2: Thanks, uh, thanks for having me in here. I appreciate it. You guys have a good day.
0: You too, Laurie. Thank you so much for joining us. Laurie Thomas is the mother of Evan Thomas, one of the 16 victims in the Humboldt Broncos crash. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, Jeff Braun is here, Kelly Moore is here, Jeff Forte, and Greg the Headline. Alabama officials urge drivers to not eat chicken tenders (laughs) spilled on highway after crash.
3: Chicken fingers went flying on an Alabama highway Saturday evening following an 18-wheeler car crash. The sighting prompted a number of hungry drivers and motorists to stop their vehicles and collect the fried snack the next day. Unfortunately, their desire to chow down caused... A significant amount of traffic, which, first of all, is illegal. (laughs) And then, shortly after the crash, the Cherokee County Emergency Management released a public service announcement warning those traveling on Highway 35 near the DeKalb (laughs) County line to stop stopping their vehicles. And not to mention the fact that the uh, (sighs) chicken fingers had been outside, unrefrigerated, (laughs) unfrozen for more than 24 hours.
1: But they're free, <laughs> and I'm hungry, Greg.
3: And they were, but they were already cooked. <laughs> yeah,
4: Top that traffic right. report, they Justine took- Ruche. Oh,
3: uh, yeah. I just yeah, yeah, stopped yeah,
4: for him. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, where's the honeydeal <laughs> truck would be my only question.
3: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they have that in the United no, States. No, they're not big
1: on the honeydeal unfortunately.
3: No. No. Isn't deal? Uh, didn't that start at Manitoba? Manitoba? It's I a Manitoba thing, it thing, yeah. Yeah, Manitoba thing. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know what to think. <laughs> yeah.
0: So that got us wondering about shameful things that we have willingly eaten, because we've all eaten things that were gross, Things we eat, things that were, you know, that we we didn't mean to eat them. uh, Whether it was something that was uncooked at a restaurant or whatever, Uh, we talked about that rat soup last week. But
5: uh,
0: I I will admit to doing a couple things. The (laughs) items themselves were not gross, but I think it was the sheer amount that I consumed. For example, once, and granted, I was a teenager, so I could eat like a horse. But I once ate, much to the chagrin of my parents, I'm sure, who of course picked up the grocery bill. A full Costco bag of Cheetos
4: puffs. In one sitting,
1: and those are big. Those are big bags. bags. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
4: I can't even. I have a whole new level of respect for you, hip (laughs) man. My gut aches just
3: thinking about Uh, that mm
0: -hmm. one. Remember, remember, Bob Irving a couple weeks ago told us he ate two bags, two large
4: bags of popcorn in (laughs) one movie. Holy! How long did it take to get the orange off your fingers? That's what I want to know. Probably
0: a week, I would imagine. I think my my hands would have just been
4: completely stained. I just see it now. Your parents, Brett. Did you eat that whole bag? (laughs) No. You. You. caught orange
0: because <laughs> <laughs> they have to roll me off the couch and another time and this was actually not this was only a few years ago bought a, a jug of mil- of chocolate milk a four liter jug uh, and it, it didn't last the night I drank the whole thing over the course of one evening
1: <laughs> oh, this
3: just could be a true confessional for Brett for the next nine minutes or so. Yeah.
1: Jeff, yeah. you'd eat those chicken fingers, hey? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah.
6: Oh sure. If they're cooked, why not? Yeah, yeah. You the pickiest eater in the world. Plain chicken fingers? If I would take the ones off the top of the pile, not the ones that are right on the road, but yeah. <laughs> you want them from the middle so they stayed frozen, the most frozen. Yeah, I think bit. that would be the method methodology there. Uh, the grossest thing I ever did um, in college, I did it more than once. You know, you can buy the little one kg. Packages of gummy bears, I'd eat that whole thing in one shot.
0: Good for you. That's
6: oh. that, That's probably still inside me. It, this <laughs> no it's,
3: just, it's glue. You like, know just that's 2.2 pounds, right, yeah. Yeah. Jeff?
6: I think we switched oh, to the metric delicious. system to make
3: ourselves feel better
6: about stuff like that. It's that thing when, like you, that. when you move out for the first time where it, it dawns on you, hey, I can eat whatever I want, <laughs> whenever I want. I'm having gummy bears for supper. <laughs>
1: I will admit to having like not uh, so if you leave the pizza out, you know, you have a pizza in a cardboard yeah. container and I've left it out overnight and I've eaten the pizza the next day and I've also done that with fried chicken.
6: Oh. Oh no. Chicken yeah. like out. on the counter overnight.
1: On the counter overnight and then I put it back in the fridge to make myself feel better <laughs> and then like an hour later was like, "You know what?" Let's just finish up that nice little <laughs> oh, piece of fried chicken. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's because like I, you know, you live when you live in different countries too. People have different rules on like refrigeration, and you'll yeah. go to the market in different places. And in Israel, you know, the meat would be hanging out, and eggs would be left out all day. And it's the same and, thing
4: in Mexico. And you yeah. wouldn't
1: worry about it. And there's just you, you get in your head. It's not that big a deal, especially if it's cooked. So, I don't know. I won't give it to my kids, per se, because I'd feel really bad if I'm like, eat this chicken, and then they're sick in the middle of the night. But uh, I'll do it.
6: So yeah. you don't have to worry about that with gummy bears.
5: <laughs>
3: <laughs> they stay fresh all the time, right. right? It yeah. always comes back to life can be summed up in a clip from The Simpsons, Friends, or in this case, Seinfeld.
7: Find yourself in the
8: kitchen. You see an eclair in the receptacle,
0: <laughs> and you think to yourself, What the hell? I'll
6: just eat
0: some trash. No, 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 no. It was not trash. Was it in the trash? Yes. Then it was trash. (laughs) It wasn't down in. It was sort of on top. But it was in the cylinder. Above the rim. Adjacent to refuse is refuse. It was in a magazine, and it still had the doily on. Was it eaten? One little bite.
6: Well... That's
7: garbage.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's the episode, of course, where George decided that an an eclair with one bite out of it was suitable for his consumption, and Uh, he he apparently didn't want to make any apologies to Jerry about it anyway. (laughs) How about you, Kelly?
4: I I can't compete with Brett. There's just no way, but I, I think I... I can't remember exactly how many it was. It was probably around 10, but same thing. I was a teenager. We were driving to a Canucks game, and I think I bought a bag of about 10 McDonald's cheeseburgers. Good for you. And, and ate them all. Oh, That's worse than breaks. Outstanding. Ten. I salute you.
1: Like five, I could see because they're pretty small. Like they're not yeah. huge
4: burgers. Ten wasn't, they weren't that big.
1: Oh, you know? God. I don't know if you stack those up. That's a good three
4: quarter pounders at least. D- did I mention that uh, I also had some fries with them as well? <laughs> oh, oh, my God. God. And, a <laughs> and a chocolate milkshake. Yeah. How, How old were you? you? <laughs> I was probably about 17. 16, 17, 17. Yeah, yeah. 14. Four cheese,
1: yeah. He looks like he's in on this
4: burger Uh, thing.
6: Well, no, not the burger thing. Mine's actually really gross. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) uh, Well, no, I, I love milk. So one time I drank so much milk, I actually got sick. Okay. Five minutes later, I went back for more.
0: That a
1: boy.
0: <laughs> oh, puked and rallied. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You just made you. some room. Oh. That's just smart. I think I've that's got,
3: good. I've got to read this text message that came in right off the top of the show when we mentioned we were going to talk about this. When I was a younger man, my roommate and I were coming home late from the pub. We found a case of turkey wieners while walking over a bridge. They were still cold and packed in packages of six, so we drunkenly brought them home. We uh, ate these things and everything. Turkey wiener stew, turkey wiener lasagna, you named it. We lived off those wieners all summer.
0: <laughs> that is amazing. Nice. Thank nice. you so much for sharing that. <laughs> oh, that is,
1: you know, I think that's good. It was turkey's different. I feel like that's different than a piece of chicken. I don't know why. Like a turkey wiener, like a wiener's already kind of been cooked processed. in some way, yeah. right? processed
4: yeah. or whatever. Yeah. There's
1: one but. more listener wrote in to say her rule is A B C. Already been chewed. Still finish my three year old's meals while cleaning the toys up. Oh, I've done I can't. That.
3: I can't. No.
6: I eat will, off of anybody else's I will plate. eat the crust that anyone leaves behind from their pizza. Really? Yep. Yeah. If I, it's like if I am even a minor acquaintance of you and you leave the crust <laughs> on your plate, I'll gladly eat it. I'll bring I, in a box of crust for you.
4: There you up, go. I have eaten <laughs> off,
1: <laughs> off the car floor like the kids will drop in toast in the morning and I will and I'll be I've been on my way into work before. I oh. have, the toast is sitting there and you're like it's still good.
6: I may have dumped some fries on the car floor a couple of weeks ago and ate them. Yeah. Oh, we are disgusting. <laughs>
5: <laughs>
4: and people are trying to eat
6: breakfast right now.
4: We're going to talk about
0: online threats to Justin Trudeau in a moment, but talking about. Gross things like licking a doorbell. In our previous segment, we were discussing eating gross stuff. And Greg, we've got some great text messages here.
3: Yeah, the two best ones involve pizza. Unfortunately, I'm going to pick the shorter one uh, for time constraints. One time, me and my friend got into a pizza eating contest at Pizza Hut. He ate 24 slices, but I beat him with 26. Yes. After that... We decided to go to DQ for a blizzard. Wow.
0: (laughs) How is that possible? Yeah. I salute you for your disgusting eating. Wow, that is a lot of food. McNabb, here's one of the examples. Trudeau needs to be shot.
1: Yeah, pretty... uh point-blank statement, no pun intended there. It's just one of many comments appearing on a Facebook page for Canadians who loosely align themselves with the so-called yellow vest protesters in France. That's a group, so that the Canadian group has more than 100,000 members and the yellow vest represents an anti-government movement and the anger here is targeted mostly at the Liberals, their carbon tax, immigration policies, to name a few. But as far as the RCMP are concerned, some of the online comments about the Prime Minister have gone too far. Another one of those comments says he needs to eat lead while a second person wrote, just shoot him. The moderator of the group has since said they do not tolerate that kind of talk. But the real question is what can be done about it and maybe what should be done about it. Brett Caraway is the assistant director at the University of Toronto's Institute of Communication, Culture, Information and Technology and joins us now this morning. Good morning, Brett. Good morning. So it's not uncommon to hear death threats, and we hear them to the Prime Minister. We hear about them, you know, when the Team Canada hockey captain missed a penalty shot last week. But the question we are all were wondering this morning is just how seriously should they be taken, you know, when a person comes forward and says, well, I was just kidding. Does that stand up in court?
8: Well, So there have been recent cases in Toronto, Regina, Saskatchewan, um, all dealing with threats to MPs or um, other high-profile politicians. Um, The advantage that Trudeau has, obviously, is that he has the RCMP that investigates all of his um, all the threats that are made against him. And they're the ones that are trying to figure out, are these threats credible? What was the context in which these threats were made? Um, And most of these prosecutions happen under criminal code 264.1, which is the uttering threats um, section of our criminal code, which makes it or prohibits people from you know, conveying threats that have to do with hurting people, killing people, even like hurting or killing your pet, your dog, your animal or something like that. It also prohibits you from making threats to destroy personal property. And all of those um, prosecutions that have happened all occur under that specific statute. Um, Whereas like in the United States, for example, there's a federal offense that is directed specifically at people who make threats against the president of the United States, um, but in addition, in addition to the RCMP trying to figure out whether or not these are credible threats, Facebook has its own set of community standards, and they also are, um, you know, quite capable of. Canceling people's accounts or removing content and things like that. So they're also trying to make a determination about the context in which these sorts of threats are made.
3: So I'm going to put in uh, quotation marks uh, credible, whether they are credible or not. There's a lack of good judgment going on here. I know that when I go to an airport, I'm very conscientious of the language that I use, joking around about certain things we know is not a good idea. Are some of us overly sensitive or are we just uh, smart people for uh, thinking in that vein that you just simply don't say certain things in certain forums and in certain public locations?
8: Well, we are definitely smart people, and everybody else lacks good judgment. <laughs> That's how I always view it. Um, no you don't you don't stand in a security line and make a threat about i mean not make a threat but make a joke about bombs or something like that. There's a certain amount of common sense to this, but uh, a social media firm like Facebook has to strike a balance between trying to provide a, an environment for free expression that you know sort of promotes or cultivates a feeling of safety among community members, but also doesn't prohibit or put too much um, or too many limits on people's freedom of expression so Facebook, in its own community of standards uh, community standards wrestles with this they they say look every not every threat that's made or every sort of uh, promotion of violence is, is seriously sometimes that's actually part of a political discourse and so what they want to do is somehow try and discern again what's the context in which this is made? Is this uh, you know is this a joke? Is this a form of dark humor, or is this um, you know something that might lead to an actual uh, you know someone committing violence against a, a high-profile person or a marginalized po- uh, member of um, a member of a marginalized population? So it's always a balance between encouraging a lot of expression. Uh, because Facebook needs that, right, for its revenue model, but also making sure they're providing a safe environment. It's tough.
0: So what kind of trouble could I get in if I go on to Facebook and say, oh, that Trudeau, he's an idiot, he needs to be shot?
8: Uh, you can find yourself sitting in a prison cell for up to five years for doing something like that. So it's a serious offense.
1: And are we increasingly taking it more seriously in the sense of that punishment in the courts, or is it still more of a, a, a threat in response to the threat?
8: I, you know, trying to discern trends in in prosecutions here is is hard uh, for me anyway because I I just pick these cases up uh, or they come on my radars as, as the media reports them. Um, so I'm not actually sure about that. I know that groups like the RCMP um, must be struggling under the weight of, of of dealing with online social media forums. Right? It, it used to be that. You know, maybe in the 1960s and 1970s, someone would physically overhear someone threatening somebody, or intercept a communication, or maybe you know somebody would write a letter into a local newspaper. But it it was a little bit more difficult and required more effort. I think now you can just tweet, you know, from your phone um, a threat. You can utter a threat um, and then post it, and it can be seen by you know as many people that are participating in the in the social forum. So I'm sure it's, you know, there's probably more to deal with now than there has been in the past. And uh, one of the first things that the courts had to deal with, I'm sure, was trying to establish that the uttering of threats um, applied in the context of online communications, which they have firmly established that now.
0: Brett Garraway is the assistant director at the University of Toronto's Institute of Communication, Culture, Information and Technology, joining us live on CJOV. Brett, thank you very much, sir.
8: Thanks, I'm going to go disinfect my, uh, door, my doorbell.
0: <laughs> we want you to save the date. Friday, January 25th, you can help the Health Sciences Centre Foundation's Hope to Life Radiothon. You can help supporters in our community who have transformed the lives of loved ones throughout our province. You can listen to 680 CJOB and Power 97 from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. and hear what is possible thanks to many generous donors. And you can make your gift today at hopetolife.ca. And Greg, we have a couple of special guests in our studio.
3: Well, what better way to highlight the work that the Health Sciences Center does and the foundation itself but to hear from patients that have had their lives transformed by the care that they've received on campus at HSC. And Eric Guy is here to tell us his harrowing story of what went down on his 23rd birthday of all occasions. Eric, great to see you. Good morning.
9: Yeah, Thanks for having me. So uh, you were in a little bit different shape about five and a half months ago. Yeah, I was... uh... I was standing a little bit taller, and I had two less rods in my back. That's the the short summary of that.
3: So, where were you on your birthday? How were you celebrating? And and really, what was the event that can we say changed your life forever? Absolutely,
9: we can. Yeah, absolutely. So, I was out at my cottage, which is just south of uh, of Winnipeg Beach there, and I was out with a couple of my friends, or whatever. Um, you know, just late in the evening, probably seven eight p.m. or whatever, just after the sun's gone down, and uh, we're going swimming or whatever. And there's a little pier you can kind of walk down walked down into the water there, and we just, you know, I basically just dove in a little bit, just feet were already kind of in the water, not underground yet, and anticipating more of a little bit deeper water than there was. And for whatever reason, you know, hadn't rained in a couple of weeks, a dry year, a lot more shallow than I thought. And so I, I hit my head on the bottom of, uh, of the water on the sand there. And uh, the next day I basically found out that I'd broken my neck that that day. So my word. it wasn't off a dock, you were already in the water? Yeah, so it's kind of a weird situation where it's like um. There's a the pier and you walk down. So my feet were technically in the water already, like on the stairs.
1: And you dove in and you got up and walked yeah. away and didn't think yeah, anything of it? Yeah, it was like it?
9: super miraculous, actually. Like all the doctors were super surprised that they were like, thought I'd had all this like crazy tingling and stuff. And I was very, very fortunate. Uh, but I kind of just walked out and, you know, the instant of, uh-oh, that, that wasn't right. Something's wrong. But I didn't know the extent. I kind of assumed, oh, maybe I, you know, tweaked my back or something or something's jammed a bit or whatever and then the next morning when I woke up it was like a yep this is probably more serious than I tweaked my back and I should probably see someone who's let's say smarter than me to take a look at it kind of thing
0: so you you mentioned off the air that uh, you actually feel a little bit stronger now you broke your neck but somehow you're you're feeling stronger
9: yeah it's uh it's pretty cool so the surgery they did basically they put two two rods in my back so they basically are on each each side of my of like my final column there to kind of support it and stuff. And the road to recovery has basically just been a bunch of like rehab and trying to, you know, be as active as I can without pushing it too much. But it's been a a really good experience for me. Uh, And I, yeah, I would definitely say I am stronger, like emotionally and physically.
1: I'm fascinated when I hear someone say they break their neck, they spend time in hospital, they have to relearn all sorts of things. And they say it's a good Experience,
9: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I've never done it before, but I can say from the one time that it's happened to me, it was a great experience. Really? Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, Continue, I was, Yeah, I was just going to, you know, for me, I've, uh, I've spent a lot of time in hospitals, whether it be volunteering or just seeing, you know, friends and family there, but it's never, it's never been me. And you never really experience what it's like to be the patient and you never think it'll be you uh, until of course it is. And so, yeah, the whole experience from like pretty much the day I was in there to the day I left was phenomenal. Phenomenal.
3: Monique levesque Farrow is Manager of Sponsorship and Events for Health Sciences Centre. And Monique, how common is this that you hear a story not only of gratefulness, that uh, someone's life has been preserved, their quality of life has been saved by the expertise at HSC, but on the flip side, now all of a sudden you've got Eric, who's a great-looking guy, young man with his whole life in front of him. Now he's become somewhat of an evangelist for what happens on campus at HSC.
5: Completely. I mean, it's no secret we are the flagship hospital of our healthcare system. And with that, I don't think a week goes by where I don't meet someone or hear about someone who's had an experience at HSC and is grateful to be here today.
0: The donations that will come in for the Radiothon on the 25th, what is that going to go towards?
5: Well, we have a tagline that simply says we're funding tomorrow's health care today. We know that HSC is fantastic, but there's always room for growth. And if you look at our annual report or go online, you'll see that that growth is always happening. We recently had an announcement with the Burn Fund. We had Paul Albrechtson announce another $5 million gift. But it's every size of gift that matters, from the $5 to the $5 million Every bit goes to improving health and patient care at HSE.
1: Every time we talk about the radiothon or about the needs at the various hospitals in Winnipeg, I always like to remind people that you assume that these things are taken care of because of your tax dollars or your government money that's going into it. And at the end of the day, that's not the case. And so you talk about the the need that's there. What what would the money what would you like to tell people to know the money might go towards or examples of things that it has helped with when you mentioned the burn fund or other?
5: That's a great question. So first of all, Merrick Holmes is our presenting sponsor, and you'll know um, from hearing about their story, they came to us similarly in the same fashion. And it's every bit of the hospital that makes a difference. So for example, last year we had a fund-a-need uh, auction for POCUS, Point of Care Ultrasound. And so recently I had uh, the pleasure of meeting with Dr. Dr. Chris Simbalisti, and chatted with him about how that improved the emergency room procedures. And basically, it's an equipment that is able to uh, assess a patient as they present in the emergency room for the best care possible.
3: Well, my Grammy always used to say, good, better, best. Never mm. let it rest till the good get better and the better best. And that's what we're talking about, right? Good, better, and better best in terms of, of health care. Before we let you go, I want to ask you, Eric... What have you learned about the system that maybe you might have taken for granted uh, before you were a part of it, or maybe you just didn't realize what specialized care is available to people? I know when my babies were born, I'd never heard of the neonatal intensive care unit until I was standing in the middle
9: of it. So it was eye-opening for me from that point of view. Yeah, totally. Um, I think the biggest takeaway for me was how simple the process was and how how comforting it was. I think you think of an experience like breaking your neck and you think, you know, holy smokes, like this is a terrible experience. I'm probably freaking out. And like pretty much from the second I was at the hospital to the moment I left, I was super calm. I was very comforted. I I think I kind of said it once before. Like, I think the doctors made, did a really good job of making you feel just like a person, not a patient. So they were never really looking down at you as like, you know, someone who's super in need of care, but just another person there that just needs a little bit of help or support. So I think the biggest takeaway for me was just how easy it was and how great of a job everyone there did and how comforting I felt like literally the entire time I was there.
0: Eric, you broke your neck five months ago. Now you've got some metal rods in you. Does that mean every time you walk through a scanner, that's going to go off? That's the ultimate question. (laughs) It
9: was literally the first question I asked my resident doctor when I met him. No. So apparently what they use, I guess it's... Titanium or whatever they use, and that that is like one of the ones that doesn't set off the metal detectors. Have you tested it yet? No, it's on the to-do list. My first <laughs> my first flight is uh, when well, I guess it'll be in February. I'm going out to Ottawa, so that'll be they will be the big like the drums in the background to see if they're telling me the truth or not. But
3: well, or, let us know how that
1: goes. Absolutely.
9: <laughs>
3: Well, yeah. Eric, this is a great story. Thank you for sharing it with us, and we'll look forward to more stories like yours, more stories that will inspire you to think about uh, your reasons for supporting the Hope to Life Radiothon presented by Merrick Holmes, right here on 680 CJOB. Of course, that goes January 25th.
0: Eric, is our former neurosurgery patient at HSC and Monique levesque farrow manager of sponsorship and events for Health Sciences Center. Thank you so much to both of you for coming in. Thanks,
5: Thanks so much for having us.
0: We start this hour, Greg Mackling, with Donald Trump.
3: Yeah, last night Donald Trump addressed the nation with the aid of, uh, well, the, at least from his point of view, the hated media. And here's, I just want to play 27 seconds of audio from the president and, and tell me or ask yourself what other issue would you like to see the president so passionate about based on the words contained in this clip.
2: I've held the hands
7: of the weeping mothers and embraced the grief stricken fathers so sad so terrible I will never forget the pain in their eyes the tremble in their voices and the sadness gripping their souls. How much more American blood must we shed before Congress does its job.
3: I'm not going to editorialize. I guess I did with the clip. I'll just leave it with you. Reggie Cicchini joins us from Washington, D.C. And Reggie, um, I felt as though that the president was trying to show a, a kinder, softer, gentler side
10: of himself in his address last night. He was, and we were expecting it to sound a little bit like that. It's what exactly we got. It's just the simple fact that Donald Trump is the kind of person who can change his personality on a minute-by-minute basis. So 99% of people who are watching that have seen the president lash out at the media. They've seen the president kind of give false numbers and uh, heated rhetoric when he's on TV. So to all of a sudden have him sitting there acting very presidential, uh, it, it makes people question, you know, what's the sincerity, what's the motive behind this? Uh, but beyond that, the president really gave an address to the nation last night to pull out greatest hits and offer absolutely nothing new
1: the the idea at the end of it was after he spoke the democrats came out and gave their piece and, and one of their messages was can we not separate the idea of this government shutdown and this border wall can we have two separate conversations so we can get government back to work does it feel like
10: we moved forward on that or are we still at this stalemate No, we're still stuck exactly where we were 24 hours before this address to the nation happened. Because, look, as soon as the Democrats took control of the House, they immediately put a whole bunch of bills to the Senate to say, look, we need to sign these bills, get them moving, get the government open, then we can deal with border security. But the Senate and the President have both said, look, don't send us anything unless it has border funding in it. So last night for the Democrats to come out and say, look, Mr. President, we're now going to give you bills one by one. We need to do this on a bipartisan level. We need to get the government open and then talk about border security. It goes to show that when... When they go to meet this afternoon, neither side is willing to budge on where they stand, either not funding or all for funding. So
3: go ahead, Brett. I was
0: just going to say he also didn't follow through on threats to uh, declare a national emergency.
10: No, and that was one of the things that we were kind of hesitant to say whether he would or not, because the president would face a whole bunch of legal challenges if he decided to go around Congress to say, "Look, I'm going to take this money from you anyways. We're going to build the wall with this money that hasn't been appropriated properly." He would have faced a civil liberties challenge. He would have faced challenges within the Supreme Court. We knew it was going to be difficult. It doesn't mean that he's not going to do that down the road. Press Secretary Sarah Sanders just an hour ago on the front lawn of the White House, when asked if this is a crisis, why didn't the President do something about it? Her response was, "Well, we're." still looking at it. Worth noting, as I had mentioned on Twitter, that if it's a crisis it's happening right now. You can't just keep looking at it.
3: Well, and if it's a crisis that would have fit the narrative and the, the need for an address that took place last night, there didn't really seem to be a whole lot within the address that would categorize or, or allow anybody to walk away with the, even the sense that there was a crisis, only maybe a large concern and, and a concern uh, maybe from from one sanction or one part of the population. Uh, Reggie, I, I don't know about you, but my opinion would be that the Democrats maybe should have just passed on the time that was allotted them and just maybe done the, you know what, uh, we're just gonna we're just gonna step away from the microphone here and let the president's words speak for themselves I don't think they did themselves any favors I'm talking of the Democrats
10: yeah the Democrats are actually taking some heat this morning for, for basically coming out and falling flat and not having that enthusiasm that could have countered what the president was basically saying in a very flat tone of sentences that we've heard before we've heard Chuck Schumer we've heard Nancy Pelosi kind of fire up at the cameras when they're standing in front of them but to have an opportunity where you have an absolutely captivated obvi- uh, audience the Democrats really needed to step up And say, look, Mr. President, the facts that you're giving are wrong. This is what we need to do. They just gave their simple playing lines that they always give. And the Democrats really had an opportunity and they missed it when they when they went to speak after the president.
1: So nothing new really said. Same old lines We're at a stalemate. I know it's impossible to predict lately what's what could happen next in Washington. But is there a what's next in this scenario?
10: Well, I mean, the what's next is going to come this afternoon. The president heads to Capitol Hill. He goes to uh, have a GOP luncheon with, uh, with leadership. And then he's expected to have a whole bunch of them back at the White House to continue these negotiations to either reopen the government or discuss border funding. But like we said, no side is willing to budge on this. And if the president really does want to hold true to his word and does keep the government shut down for months or potentially years over this impasse, it's going to have lingering effects in the months to come. But worth noting, there are a couple of Republicans inside the Senate right now that are starting to pull back from the party inside more with Democrats, which could show that the president may have a losing base inside his own political party as he tries to move this forward.
0: One thing that did come immediately after, as you're uh, just looking at globalnews.ca right now, your colleague Jackson Prosko pointed out that the Trump campaign began fundraising immediately after the address, uh, based on what was what Donald Trump said.
10: And this is something that the president does on every single moment he, he can kind of capitalize on, whether it's an address to the nation or whether it's kind of a crisis that's going on within the United States that is or isn't happening. He'll send a funding email out to be, uh, to say to his uh, his followers, look, I made my pitch. I'm out there trying to do the best for the country, trying to do the best for Republicans and trying to do the best for you. Now you need to send money to the party so that we can continue moving forward. Donald Trump will never look at anything he does as a negative. It'll always be a positive, And he'll rally, around, uh, rally the people around him to say, look at all the great things that we're trying to do. If it's not happening, simply just look at the Democrats and blame them.
0: He mentioned Twitter. You can follow him at Cicchini underscore DC. Global's Reggie Cicchini joining us live from DC. Thank you very much, Reggie. Thank you. Greg, I know that uh, you... And one of your journeys to Mexico, Mm -hmm. uh, was it that you were
3: told simply, if you go in, you're not getting out? It was Mazatlan Spring Break 1996. The bar was the Mundo Banana. There had been what they call a tourist party there the night before uh, for people from Canada. And then we were allowed, we went into the bar afterwards. We had a great time. And we happened to be in Mazatlan as we approached the holiday for Easter break, which meant lots of Mexicans from Guadalajara and the inland were coming to resorts like Mazatlan and Acapulco. And so the next night, my buddy John and I had had such a good time. The previous night, we wanted to go back to this bar. But in 24 hours, the tone had changed entirely based on the fact that there were more Mexicans in Mazatlan than there were the previous evening and you're exactly right. We wanted to go in the bar and the bouncer looked at us and said if I let you go in there you won't come out and that was 23 years ago.
0: Well the latest headline on this at globalnews.ca is Mexico. It's safe if you stay inside resort areas. Experts say after seven killed in Playa del Carmen. Loren McNabb who are we speaking with This hour on this subject.
1: Well, Walter McKay is a BC-based police specialist who also developed a program to raise certain policing standards in Mexico, and he joins us on the phone now from BC. Good morning, Walter. Good morning. So, is it as simple? You know, if I'm I'm planning a trip this month or next month, and many Manitobans are to head down to Mexico, is it as simple as just saying, "Okay, I can stay in the resort and I'll be safe"?
11: Uh, Actually, it is. And, you know, I didn't notice uh, a a lot of people contacting me after the Las Vegas shooting asking me if the United States was was safe and, uh, you know, if there's any travel warnings for the states. So it's kind of interesting that uh, in that instance, you had dozens who were killed uh, as opposed to uh, seven, not downplaying the tragedy, but uh, it uh, the, the the. there's three groups that have a very large vested interest in tourism. That's the criminals, the government and businessmen and they all work very hard to try and keep uh, Canadians and American tourists safe.
3: So the criminal the criminals themselves, the, the gangs, the organized crime in Mexico itself, have zero interest in, in tourism drying up in Mexico.
11: Absolutely not. They, tourism is uh, the number is number two next to uh, petroleum for revenue. And then the third uh, huge generator, of course, is just the corruption and drugs itself. And uh, the criminal organizations have their fingers in all three areas.
3: Walter, can you acknowledge though that things have changed in terms of uh, the way people may interpret their own safety in Mexico? Could it be that 20 years ago, the rule that you just gave us might have been one that we should have followed then? Even though, uh, from personal experience, I can tell you that, that my feelings on visiting the country have changed dramatically in two and a half decades.
11: Yeah, you know what, I... When people, I get this question quite often, actually, and, and, I, and I'll say, you know what, it, there, there's not other places I'd go to. I, I'd go to Cuba or somewhere else. Um, but uh, I don't, if someone says, yeah, but I want to go to Mexico because of this, uh, I won't argue them out of it. A lot of people, they say, they'll tell me, oh, I've been going here wherever for 20 years. Well, you probably know that area better than I. Why bother changing? I, I can't convince you of that. But the overall um, general social fabric of, of Mexico is definitely unwinding uh, and even 20 years ago you don't want to if you go there uh, you go to the resort drink your beer uh, enjoy the sun and that's great go home but if you venture out and whether you get robbed or you by a car or you have some sort of calamity happen to you you just don't want to be caught up in that social system they have whether it's policing uh, medical or anything else because it, it's just not very good and unless you have a lot of money You do not get that. You'll be very sorely disappointed. And this is where you get these reports of Canadians because something has happened and they've encountered something beyond the bubble of that tourist zone. And that's that's the issue.
1: Well, I was going to ask about we've talked about the criminals, but there's also, I think, a perception. And I don't know if it's a misconception or if it's fair about the authorities and how police might handle things. Should you find yourself in a situation where you were robbed or assaulted? Or others, is it a fair characterization to have those concerns in the policing in some of those uh, regions in Mexico?
11: Absolutely. In fact, I, I lived in Mexico for seven years, and uh, they, there's a saying down there that if you, if a robber steals your wallet or steals your money, don't call the police because they'll steal your wallet.
0: Well, that happened to a friend of mine who went down to Cancun. Him and his buddy were walking down the street, and a couple of cops rolled up, picked them up, and basically drove them out of town and said, if you want to get back, you got to give us like a $1,000. Uh, they didn't get a $1,000, but they did extort these guys
11: for what they had. Yep, yeah, no, and that's absolutely, in fact, uh, I haven't seen uh, much writings, but I, I would not hesitate to, to really la- uh, label Mexico a narco-state. Uh, you know, the, the the corruption that's endemic goes right from the top. Uh, we've seen revelations from El Chapo's, uh, Guzman's trial in the United States, really just the threads have gone through this country right from the top to the very bottom and it's been going on for decades. And how do you fix that? No idea. As a tourist, it would certainly concern me. But again, like I say, they, they do have a vested interest in keeping you safe and happy. Um, So if you say, look, I want to go to Puerto Vallarta, I would say go ahead, but just fly in there, go to the five-star hotel in the all-inclusive, drink, eat, sleep, whatever, and then fly back. Don't be adventurous. Don't say, oh, I'm going to take a taxi and see the real city and meet the real people. Uh, because that's where you're going to encounter trouble.
3: Boy, oh boy, Does that ever hurt my heart to hear you say that, because uh, Puerto Vallarta in particular, they have so many incredible restaurants down on the Malecon, and, and you, you don't need, I've always told people when they're going to Puerto Vallarta, you don't need an all-inclusive, because the food outside the resort is 10 times better than anything you'll get on resort. So for me, the, the, it feels like a, a dramatic shift in thinking.
11: Well, and again, for you, it sounds like you're familiar with it. You can go ahead and ignore my my information, right? I, I, that's fine. Although you're probably aware that there was a busload of tourists who were kidnapped about three years ago and robbed uh, in Puerto Vallarta as they were heading downtown. So, if you were, you know, there's there's just that. Those issues that are happening. If you want to take the chance, go ahead. Uh, I, I don't tell people not to go to Detroit or Chicago, which has a murder rate that, uh, for the city itself, is higher than the, the majority of Mexico as a country. Um, and there are places in Chicago that you go to and places you don't go to. So I can't advise you not to go. But, you know, in general, I'm not going to go to Chicago.
0: Walter McKay is a BC-based police specialist who developed a program to raise policing standards in Mexico. Walter, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate the time and the insight.
11: My pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: The headline once again at cjob.com, globalnews.ca. Mexico, it's safe if you stay inside resort areas, experts say, after seven killed in Playa del Carmen. That and is hard
1: to hear, right? Because you always think, I want to go and experience the culture. Mm-hmm. And and if you get down there, like, what's the difference between going to any hotel? I mean, you got the ocean and you've got some cerveza. I get that. But then you're not really seeing Mexico. Mexico.
0: Question of the day at CJOB.com. Should Jaskarat Singh Sadhu, the truck driver in the Humboldt Broncos crash, get a reduced sentence in light of his remorse? So far, 54% say yes. 46% say no. Question of the day, by the way, brought to you by... Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. And we put the poll up on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. On Instagram and on Facebook, it's about 43% in favor of yes. But on, uh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought there. Facebook, Twi- Twitter, that's where I was going next. 50-50, you say, Greg? It was 50-50 there. Correct. So you can weigh in on that on all of our social media and at cjob.com. And one more note of housekeeping, Fortier, who won the Def Leppard tickets? Scott Kennedy. Scott Kennedy knew that the song Promises, which happens to be my favorite Def Leppard song, is from the 1999 album Euphoria, which was also my favorite nightclub when I was (laughs) (laughs) there.
1: Which one was that?
0: Windsor Park Inn. Mm -hmm. It's now a Tavern United. It was, uh, prior to that, it was Stereo, and then before that it was Pharaohs. Why was it it your favorite? What was about Euphoria? Club
3: Soda, one point, (laughs) right? (laughs)
0: That's right. Yeah. No, Euphoria. They just they played all kinds. They were the only place in the city, really, a mainstream club that played lots of uh, techno music. That was your thing. I liked the techno, and they had the best light show as well. Lots of black light.
1: I didn't see that coming. like a a techno guy oh
0: yeah I used to have the big stupid uh, big black baggy (laughs) pants that had like 30 inch flared uh, bottoms oh my gosh I need a
1: picture of this tomorrow and Greg's wedding photo
0: oh yes my wedding photo thank you both of you
1: tomorrow homework
0: okay well I think I have a picture of me looking (laughs) ridiculous on my Facebook somewhere (laughs) All right. hey let's play this piece of music now oh hang on a second did you announce the winner Yeah. Okay, what was the winner's name again? (laughs) Scott. Scott
9: Scott Kennedy. Scott Kennedy is our winner. Okay, wow. (laughs) He needs a little techno
1: music to wake up. Jeff, that's your next assignment.
0: Def Leppard, by the way, coming to Winnipeg July 25th. Tickets on sale January 18th. More tickets to give away through the week. Okay, let's uh, resume.
3: Murat Itesh is a Winnipeg Jets correspondent for The Athletic. Outstanding online publication covers sports like nothing else. Turns out one of Winnipeg's brightest hockey minds also has a huge heart. And he's looking for a few good men this Saturday afternoon. Good morning, Murat. Good morning. How are oh you, got You guys crack me up. Well, we do our best. Uh, sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> So tell us uh, what's been happening since uh, 2015.
7: Well, yeah, since 2015, a really good friend of mine from Winnipeg named Meg Crane has has coordinated this event that sends handmade valentines to women's shelters, uh, to adults and children in those shelters all across Canada and North America. And over the last few years, she's been able to gather up enough handmade valentines cards so that people across Canada have, have all received something. And now she's spread out to the United States as well. It is a massive project. It takes thousands of cards. And it's one of the simplest acts of kindness I've ever really come across. So I've been trying to help out with that for the last couple of years as well.
1: How many people are you involved with in Winnipeg in terms of the shelters you're trying to reach to and the number of women and kids?
7: Well... Uh, in Winnipeg, I know it's a massive project and I'm just a tiny part of it. So Meg will coordinate with schools in Winnipeg and I know that she's got a list of all the shelters that we have in the city as well. And I think that she hits every single one with uh, with cars each, each year, um, which is just phenomenal. The, the part that I've been doing my best to help with um is is to get men involved because first of all at these uh, at these craft situations i've always felt a little bit awkward about my construction paper and marker skills and then second in a little bit in a little bit more serious way men are disproportionately the perpetrators of domestic violence and that's a real thing so i, I think it's a meaningful step for for folks around Winnipeg to, to get involved and if they can do that through me at the separate event this Saturday um, then I'll, I'll make that space for that. So I bring I bring the construction paper, the glue, the scissors, the, the markers everything's there. You don't have to be any good at making anything but if you show up with kind of a, a good heart this Saturday afternoon at, at the Goodwill Social Club on Portage Avenue, um, the opportunity is there to, to really do a simple, genuine, good act of kindness that, that helps them get these cards out uh, across Canada and, and the united states this year
0: is it a situation where the guys at first when they show up maybe kind of awkward because i know i i too am awful with this kind of stuff I uh, and would be kind of where do i begin when i sit down i'd be confused <laughs>
7: Yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly the reason to, to have an event like this because uh, because that feeling is is real. I mean, uh, when was the last time most grown men sat down with construction paper and, and made these things? So I try to make it fun where, you know, if uh, we're, there's a group of us, uh, people from a whole bunch of different backgrounds, a lot of hockey fans, there's this chat about all sorts of different stuff um, and just a lot of genuinely good folks there who want to do a good thing. Um, it doesn't take 15 minutes to make a few cards and really help out to uh, um, help out the overall cause but we're there from two to five at, at the goodwill social club this saturday so that's quite a window and as folks come in and out the like they, they genuinely leave feeling welcome and there's a place to tell your stories if you've got some as well that uh, that are your reasons for being there it's uh it's really one of the simplest, kindest things that I've come across and one of the reasons why I really want to help uh, help with this uh, with this initiative.
1: What are some of the stories you hear from people in terms of the reasons for being there?
7: Um, It can be quite light or it can be quite heavy as well. Um, Everybody has a different uh, connection to uh, domestic violence or uh, compassion for folks involved with domestic violence as well. Um, It can be anything from, hey, I heard about this and and I'm not too aware of it and I want to help because I'm a guy who wants to do some good things. Um, There have been folks who have had very personal stories about knowing victims of of domestic violence across Canada that just have tried to turn that into doing something good about it. And um, there's the entire range. I've heard a, a few different things for sure. Um, and, you know, if you come to, to us with one of those stories, it's a safe space for that. If you, if you come to us and you don't want to tell a story like that, that's fine, too. Um, it's really just about getting together and, and, and doing a good act.
3: Atesh joining us. The men's card-making event. It's in support of uh, women's shelters, and on this Saturday afternoon, making cards for Valentine's Day coming up, obviously, February 14th, making cards for adults and children. And uh, Marat, just an incredible way to uh, flex your, your your muscle, the power of social media. I can only imagine how many people you're expecting. But uh, good on the Go- Goodwill Social Club for stepping up and providing a space how many how many people are you are you anticipating joining you how many did you have last year
7: Well, last year we had about 10 to 15 of us, but I have a hunch to help like yours and help on Twitter and help uh, through the hockey community that I've received a lot of messages and the retweets and on Facebook. It's been really it's been at a a different level this year so I'm not sure if we're we're expecting 15 or something much, much bigger than that. I'm ready for for whatever we get and uh, it is definitely one of those situations where the more the merrier because it does take thousands of cards and the more that we can do on Saturday, the the easier it is for Meg and everybody else to volunteer volunteers with her over the rest of the month.
1: I've always said to my family, a simple message goes a long way. Before we let you go, do you ever hear back from the women or shelters of what it just means to get that, that simple message in the, in the mail?
7: For me, only tangentially through, through my good friend Meg who coordinates it on the day when we're making those cards, um, I I know it means a lot at the other end, and and um, and I hear that through Meg. However, the day when we make them, we don't know which shelter is going to quite yet, so the logistics sort out. So I, I can't really say. Um, I, I would love to have a wonderful answer for that, but I, I know it makes a difference at the other end.
3: Are there any materials that you need, Marat? Because I know there'll be people scrambling and saying, hey, I can't make it on Saturday. Is there anything that I can donate uh, in kind uh, because uh, my schedule simply doesn't allow me to make it out on Saturday? Is there anything you need? Now's the opportunity to make a call for it.
7: Absolutely. There's a Facebook event called Valentine's for Broken Hearts, and it details it all. So you can make cash donations to Meg. You can make construction paper donations, anything in terms of craft supplies. And it's very easy. Um, the steps that she lays out in this event, Valentine's for Broken Hearts on Facebook, is, is just stepwise and, and super clear. Because yeah, I understand folks might not be able to be there this Saturday or throughout the rest of their month. They, they want to help even more. And there's so many different ways that she outlines there this Saturday afternoon is just one part of it all.
3: Murat, thank you for this. How do we find you on uh, Twitter to keep up on uh, Winnipeg Jets happenings?
7: Uh, on Twitter, I am WPG Murat, and that's W-P-G-M-U-R-A-T. I claim to be the only Murat from Winnipeg. If you're out there, <laughs> tell me. but That's me.
3: Well, I find that all quality uh, Twitter accounts have WPG in them, so uh, you have my endorsement, Murat. Hey, always uh, great to spend time with you and uh, catch up with you. This incredible initiative you're taking part in. Thanks for sharing it with us this morning.
7: Thanks so much for having me. I really
3: appreciate it.
0: Murata Tesh, again, the event is happening this Saturday, January 12th, 2 to 5 p.m., the Goodwill Social Club at 625 Portage Avenue. You don't need to bring anything or be good at crafts. Just show up with a good attitude, and it'll go a long way towards doing a good thing. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think,